0: Welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani.
1: Hi, I'm Rich Irani, and thank you for listening to Rich in Life. For anybody listening and finds themselves to be a little bit negative, short-fused or impatient, you definitely should listen to this podcast. I know that these are things that I struggle with daily. Today, I have Tina Marie Clark. She's an ex-model and author and creator of the Shift-Stir method. Let's find out why an ex-model, who you would think, or at least I do, has it all, would have to come up with a method to control her insecurities, negativity, and anger. The Shift-Stir method is a five-step method to get your shit together and shift your perception. And for you guys out there that know me and listen to me, you know that I used to pride myself on being negative. That was kind of my shtick. I have to say, it's not cute anymore. I'm tired of getting aggravated and spinning out of control and losing my patience. Which is why I love talking to people who are as miserable as me. If they can change their perception, then I can change my perception. And then maybe you guys can change your perception and maybe the world will be a better place. I mean, probably not, but you know, it's a shot. I know that shifting and changing perception is a very important ideology. I love speaking to all these experts to find out what I can take away and how I can apply it in my own life. Tina Marie Clark, she's a real rags to riches story. I mean, literally and figuratively. She shares with me her simple childhood, her conversion to Judaism, her billionaire husband, her two sons, and how and why she created this method. That's the interesting part. So stay tuned for Tina Marie Clark. Hi Tina Marie. Hi. How are you?
0: I'm good. You?
1: Good. I know I told this I know I told this to you the last time. I love your room and I didn't even ask you. Did Kelly Worsler decorate your house?
0: She did not, but I love her and I love everything she does. So, so many pieces are from her, but she actually, I wanted her to, but it just wasn't possible. She's really in LA and just, it, it doesn't work for our schedule. Cause yeah. I'm like, I'm really tactile and I need really like hands-on like people in my house and to be able to like move different textures. And I'm what I think I want is very different than what actually comes oh, yeah. out. So I need someone there. So she's a well, little bit expensive aesthetic. for me to have that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did a great job. I think it's great Thank you kind of nailed it from what I know. Uh, Thank you. So Thank before I go on, I'd like to introduce my guests. So I am talking to Tina Marie Clark, who is the author and creator of Shift Stir Method. It's a five-step method of shifting your perception. Which I find to be very helpful, especially for somebody like me who spirals out of control, gets anxiety, and snaps every once in a while. Um, but I definitely do not scream at my kids that the day has to end. I do not do that three times a week. Um, anyway, you're a wife and mother of two boys, Maximus and Lexington, and uh, and a convert to Judaism, and an ex-model as well. So there's a lot to peel away here. I mean, there's so much and. Um, I have to tell you, I was skeptical at first Um, when I heard about you. It just seemed all too good to be true. I looked at your Instagram and, you know, I did, of course, what people shouldn't do is judge a book by its cover. And I'm like, everything just looks too perfect. But after speaking to you, I will say you were refreshingly honest. You really did talk the talk. You walk the walk. You talk about your insecurities, your, your anxieties and how you got to where we are today. And uh, I know you're the youngest of three, raised by a single mom, and you grew up in public housing as well. Right? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that, your youth well, and growing up?
0: Thank you so much for the beautiful intro. I yes, thank you so much. I did create the shift star method, but I really created the method out of despair from my childhood. I grew up in Section Eight Housing. I and in my particular community, it was a beautiful community, I would say, like middle class. But my particular house that was Section 8 was like dilapidated. It was breaking down. It was just really messy because my mom had three kids by the age of 21. So our home growing up, like, my mom wasn't worrying about the gardening. She was worrying about is there gonna be food on the table? So my mom's priorities were were keeping us alive and keeping us loved. And everything else just got tossed to the side. And she really instilled so much, so many incredible values in us without us even knowing. Um, As we grew up, me and my brothers grew up, we realized how lucky we were, even though we were in such unfortunate circumstances. We felt very ashamed And judged and less than because of our circumstances. And it was made abundantly clear from teachers to, you know, not being able to have playdates or inviting your whole class to your birthday and no one showing up. There was one girl that actually, she dropped off a, I'll never forget it. Her name was Jen and she dropped off this like um, stuffed bunny she was at least able to drop off a gift. So nobody else came, but at least she dropped off a gift. And I'll never forget that feeling because she could at least do that. She couldn't stay at my house because it was too messy and too wild. And we were the wild kids, but she at least did that. And I'll never I'll never forget that. It was just so sweet. And I, I think we had like 23 kids in that class that year. So it was a lot. You You felt it and it was palpable. And I think that my mom's, early childhood had also shaped her to be more susceptible or more at uh, more susceptible to feeling shame and growing up in that household if you don't have someone like really talking about it but my mom really identified with the shame that was coming at us because she identified identified with it in her childhood that we really had to, both of us, over the last, I wanna say 10 years, have really had to work intentionally to break down that pattern that this does not go on. She had it, I had it, and we had it, and it's not going any further.
1: Yes, it's amazing how things that hurt you stay with you your entire life. You Mm -hmm. can forget so many wonderful things that have happened throughout your life but there are things that bad things that you remember and it never goes away and um i'll never get tired of saying this but your mom my mom they're part of the best generation and i always say it, and i never get sick of saying it and i will always say it they were the generation of like you said they were used to being you know they they were used to being less than other people they were used to a lot of things not having money going through the depression you know, and just not having as much as anybody else. And they've kind of lived through it without shame. They were very proud. And it's like, my mom was the same way. She just wanted to make sure that, you know, we were in survival mode and, you know, we didn't live in public housing. We had a nice upbringing. You know, my mom was, you know, stay at home mom, but all same thing with her. I mean, the house could be falling apart literally. And she just wanted to make sure we were healthy and there was food and, and she just paid her bills. She just wanted to pay her bills you know, now it's like things change. People just not only want to pay their bills. They want to like be tall, skinny, beautiful, have tons of money, have the best friends, traveler. I mean, there's just the expectations are endless. You know that
0: Yeah, the expectations abs- are endless. Endless. There is never enough. And I think that my mom really did an incredible job at focusing and she really didn't have many friends and many things outside of the home because she said that we forced her to do her work. And when she focused on us, she could never regret it. She's like, you can never regret choosing love. And she took a back seat. She was personally developing uh, in terms of inside her mind, but she wasn't developing. She was a young girl. She had three kids by the age of 21. And she really did the work to be able to nurture herself and her soul so she could give us the best parts of my mom. And I only know those parts. Like, I I don't know. And I I think of, you know, when we talk about a shift in perception, I love my childhood now. I'm so proud of it and so empowered by it. I am so glad that I know what that feels like. I know how good it feels to not feel that way. And what I can tell you is it is not about the accumulation or the acquisition of things that actually feel good. It's being in a place where you can be okay with whatever it is, whatever your circumstances are. And one of my favorite quotes is, um, wherever you go, there you are. So as a child, I was in this dilapidated house, but I had love, and I felt in in beautiful homes and beautiful apartments really empty because I wasn't doing the work, and I wasn't focusing on the work. So there I go, not taking care of myself in my mind, and it didn't matter where I was because I was not able to see my blessings. And how lucky I really fundamentally am to be equipped with a mind that can make those decisions and has the ability to shift and has the tools to be able to help me unpeel. And you were saying about, um, you know, you can't forget about what had happened to you in your past. And I, you don't, but you also like transform those things as a springboard to where you're going. And what, it gives you that, like, the, the pain that it once caused also causes, like, an emotional charge that when it's shifted, it can cause, like, this level, I want to say, of, like, combustion in a way. Like, it, it, it energizes. So being able to have the wherewithal inside your mind to be able to shift those things and it be a positive, not to sound cheesy, but to alter it and shift it. That's really the magic.
1: Well, that is the magic. And um, first I have to say you became who you are because of your upbringing and how you lived. And even though you look back and you're like, wow, we lived in public housing. It was a mess. It was safe you felt really safe Amen. there. What was scarier was going out into the real world. And same thing for me, going out into the real world was actually scarier, you know, than being in my house that was kind of also, you know, kind of falling apart. And, you know, my dad had died. So I just had my mom and I'm one out of five. So, you know, she just went wherever the fires were. So if you didn't create a fire, you kind of didn't get attention. you know? Exactly. <laughs> but which is why your book is, is so relevant, to, I think, to everyone and anybody, I mean, it's really relevant because in today's, day, in, in today's day, it's so easy to get caught up in everybody else around you and not really look at yourself, which I do want to get to in a minute, but I do want to ask you about your dad. Did you, any contact with your dad or not even worth talking about?
0: Oh, absolutely. I have a relationship with my dad. I have two dads. I have my stepfather that raised me or that was a part of my mom's life um, since I was two my mom always kept my stepdad at bay because she never wanted any of her children to feel like he was uh, first priority. So she Taking over. for, for, I, I want to say, I think I moved when I was 18 until I was 18 from two years old to 18 years old, they had two separate homes. Wow. Yeah. Because she was always keeping like her distance. She was like, I don't care what my kids do. If I get a whiff of you rolling your eyes or a second of frustration, you will be cut off at the knees. I am their mother, they're amazing, and if you can't get on board, you're not going with me.
1: Wow, she sounds amazing, yeah, I have to tell you. Star.
0: She's a she, rock star, she's
1: She really is, she's no joke. And it's funny, my mother was kind of the same way, except she would never say we were amazing. She'd be like, listen, my kids may suck, but I'm not bringing any man into the house until they're all mm-hmm. out and married. You know what exactly. I mean? She would not bring a strange man into the house. And so I love that and I respect that. And I, I really think that your mom did something amazing and uh, she probably should have had 10 more kids.
0: She's uh, she's a really, really good mom. And I, even me being a mom now, I, I something happened with Max at camp the other day or yesterday and I called my mom and I just needed my mom to like mirror to me what I need to Talk about with Max, and she just popped into that question so quickly. Her her tone shifted. She just knew the right way to ask these questions, and they were simple. It was he got in, uh, got in trouble at camp, and I I didn't know how to talk to him about it. And I know that sounds silly, but I was like, oh, like how do I get to the root cause of that? How do you speak to a four year four year old about a root cause? Like what made you want to kick someone at camp? And I was like, I've never, I don't really know how to do this in a way. So I was like, let's call grandma. And just her being able to, within an instant, have the tone and the texture to be able to get to those things, I was just, first of all, impressed. And second of all, just glad that I have someone to mirror these really intelligent, soulful ways of approaching parenting. And it's like a conscious, parenting. She really is always aware of um, what comes up within us that our, our children mirror, And she's always been an advocate, or she has, she's always said, if it weren't for you kids, I wouldn't have healed myself because everything else I would have had an option. I didn't have the option to mess up because I had all six of your little eyeballs looking up at me And I knew I could really hurt you. So I had to do the work to really deep dive. So that I I would say that in my childhood, it wasn't, uh, these concepts are not foreign to me. So they're not necessarily, um, they, they definitely can be taught. It's not like you come out of the womb just being aware. It's something that's cultivated and cultivated after years and years of, not doing it or doing it sometimes. It's a, a right. everyday um, kind of agree with field that. of the mind. I,
1: yes, I agree with that. I think that you know people were asking me when I had my kids. You know, did you read a lot of books? And you know, of course, I bought one or two books, but never read them. They just sat on the side forever. I I'm not you know such a big reader. But I will say this: that just you know mimicking what my mom did, like getting up with us every morning, you know, before school or before camp and being home every single day for dinner, you know, at a certain time, it just instills like you get it, you kind of know what you have to do. So it's like, if you just pick up where your mom kind of left off, and you just take those cues, that in itself is so helpful. So helpful.
0: Sorry, I was just thinking about even uh, the good qualities and the bad qualities and really sifting that out of when I was talking about the generational um, inheritance of things that you accumulate through being your uh, father or mother's child. uh, You can, you have to unwind that. You asked me about my dad and I went off on a a tangent. I have a stepfather named Gary. He's amazing. Mm -hmm. And my real dad is named Wayne, he is amazing as well, and our relationship has really transformed over many years. And it was really through me doing my own healing and not taking his actions or inactions as a reflection of uh, my self-worth. So if he didn't call on my birthday, it was like, Uh it would would destroy me. Like heart, my heart would be broken. And I put my power externally and now it's more of aI love you dad I know that you if you had the tools you would I know if you could you would and you don't even do the things that I want for you how could I a- ask you to do them for me you okay. don't know how to, he doesn't know how to take care of himself in that fundamental way so what I need to do is be be the, the daughter that loves him because he he has more than enough shame and guilt from not being there. And the last thing he needs is somebody just reminding him what he needs Pause. to be reminded. Yes.
1: Uh, tell me what he needs to be reminded. What was, he needs to be that.
0: reminded of, of it is everything was exactly the way it was meant to be. Because if he was in my life, I would be different. And I like me and I like that I can have a good relationship and not have to peel back all of these traumas. I, my mom was brave enough to get us away from him that I didn't have to know and untangle all of those bad behaviors that I saw. I didn't have to okay. see my mom getting beaten. I didn't have to see my mom being hurt by my dad, him using the milk money to buy tat- tat- tattoos. Like we never got to see that. And I'm, I'm thankful for my mom's courage to be able to be like, no, 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 no. This is way too hard with you. It's going to be hard without you, but I'm willing to endure.
1: Okay. So now this is exactly when I was saying pause, what I wanted to say. This is how you know that you really walk the walk is that it would be very like weird if you you had this whole method and you weren't talking to your father. So here you are, because it could have gone either way. I mean, this could have gone either way. You could hate, you you could not, you could be estranged from your dad and really hate him for for whatever reasons, you know, any kind of abuse, whether it be verbal, physical, anything, but yet it doesn't even matter. Right now, your relationship is healed with your dad in spite of anything that might've happened because he wasn't able to do what he was able to do. And you accept that, which goes to show how it really does work. Your method
0: and I had um, to shift that. I had to, if not, I would just be a heartbroken fatherless child. I have two fathers now and I have two amazing. great fathers and I feel it so deeply. I have a father that is alive. I have two fathers that are alive, that are alive, that I get very different things from my right. a biological dad. He is the most cuddly, um, sweet, I can crawl up in his lap and watch a movie. With my stepdad, there is none of that uh, cuddly stuff, but when the shit hits the fan, I'm calling him and being like, hey, let's work this, what, what, what's going on here? And he, and he pops into that dad mode. So I get my, um, my father figure essence in different compartments of my life. I get it from my brothers, I get it from my stepdad, and my real dad. So I have that masculine energy around me and I had to just be able to accept the nourishment of the masculinity that he was equipped with. Like really, really get all his best parts out of him and be able to just know that he's, you know, I think of, um, you know, that saying, don't go to the hardware store for bread.
1: I know. I don't know it, but I like it. Right?
0: I love it. So it's saying like, don't go to the hardware store when, when you want a baguette. So I think of my dad as like, he has a, a toolbox and he has a wrench and he has a Allen key and all of these things. But my dad, like he only has a certain skill set. So I'm not going to go for him, to him for a drill because it's just, he's not equipped with it. And I have to know and get those things from other places, and it be okay. But really love how he works his Allen key, and really okay. love that, those elements of him. So, it, but right. that's taken years and years and years of pain and heartbreak for me to realize that it was, um, it I was breaking my own heart. Right, I was breaking my own mm. heart.
1: Well, yes. And it's funny because you've said that somewhere else and I don't remember is that you have to get out of your own way in order to find happiness. You have to get out of your own way. And it's crazy because I've tried to talk to friends and people and try to say the same thing that you know take what you can get out of that person and don't expect anything more take what you can get from them and just work around you have to work around the other problems just work around it if they're not you know if they don't you know feed into the things that you need or they're not there for you when you want to talk or they're not there to you know help you out in business or whatever just work around that take from them what you can get from them and accept it and i think that is truly a gift and i think when you say you had to work and it took years and years I I totally can see that because it took me years and years to get where I am. And I'm still a mess. You know, I'm still a mess and learning every day. And I want to learn every day how to be a little bit better. Um, So you're really the rags to riches story. And it's not just, you know, metaphorically in your mind rags to riches, but you were the literal sense of rags to riches. You kind of had really nothing growing up, but yet you were very happy, which was great. And um, what happened in high school? Did you go to college? Did you go right into modeling? What was your, um, what were those years like for you?
0: I was, can you hear me well?
1: Yeah, I can hear you great. Okay, I awesome. see those beautiful so eyes. Yeah.
0: I was from a very, my grandmother always says uh, that I walked out of the womb a model. That's who I was, that was my nature. All of my like extraness was able to be funneled through modeling. I loved the attention. I loved being in beautiful clothes. I was just a, like, I was just born a model. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. So when I was 15, I went to Philadelphia and got my first modeling contract and it was my dream come true. And I almost like forfeited this dream by really getting on my first job. I got really like in a, cat fight with another model. And then the next morning I got called and my agent at the time called me and like handed me, handed me my ass and said, you cannot do that. If you want to work in this industry, you cannot be like that. You can't start fights. You can't fight over shoes. This is not Okay.
1: So is that, is that what it was? It was about shoes. shoes. Okay. It was over shoes. Okay. I love it that you admit it. You admit it. No.
0: Yeah. Her name was uh, Chrissy Owens. And still, I still remember it. She's amazing. But I, I was just reactive, extremely defensive, reactive, and always ready to um, fight, always ready to fight. I felt like a street fighter at any moment I could use and without my weapons. If it was like my sword tongue or it was my physical, I'd be physically imposing or my intimidation. I just used these weapons. So that, um, I almost got, you know, I almost derailed my modeling career.
1: Yeah, you could have been blacklisted.
0: Oh, I totally. Now, if this happened, thank God we didn't have social media because I was so reactive at that time. I would have gone off the deep end on social media. I would have just blown up my whole life. Thank God I was not born in that that age because I just know myself. I would have sent weird pictures. I would have been DMing weird. I was just... So Searching. you were a
1: rebel. So you were a little bit of a rebel. You were a loose. Oh, absolutely. Cannon. Okay, you're the opposite. I, we've spoken at least once before, and I've seen you um, on your Instagram page, on your stories. You are literally the opposite now of what you were before, which is exactly what I'm trying to get to um, when we talk about your book. So you were very, um, you you went through a rebellious stage. You were a yes. loose cannon. You fought with people. Uh, how were you with boys? Were you, you know? You kind of, no you know, one ever with really
0: could even get to me because I was so aggressive that nobody could even want to be with me. And I would just be so, uh, like, masculine that I would push people away. But I definitely went through a lot of time from 15 to 18, I would say, that I was looking for love in all of the wrong places. I did not value myself. I did not respect myself. And I was willing to take crumbs for my body even. I really was. I was willing to like hook up with a guy and they would never call me again. And I would be heartbroken because all I wanted was to be seen. And I just, oh, this one, I have this one vision of this one guy that I just, you couldn't even say that he did anything wrong because I basically threw myself at him. But I remember like coming home and just wanting to wash myself because I was so ashamed of how, how much I would have, I must have been hurting if I was willing to accept these like little like grains of nourishment to my soul. So I really looked outside of myself for this. Um,
1: so then, what was the timeline? How old were you then? How, so how I would say you?
0: eight, so 15.
1: Oh, wow. Well, I was
0: like, I want to say 14 to 18, because I started dating my ex when I was 18. But really, during that time, there was, a, I want to say three years that I was just cruising for a bruising. I just was, I was kicked out of, uh, from the age, or from sixth grade to 12th grade, I was in like six different schools. So I was expelled, I was, you know, throwing chairs, I was just I was really wild and I felt feral. I felt really feral, just untamed. I could, nobody could tell me anything. I was just too defensive. So then I started modeling, started making my own money and really modeling really changed my life because it allowed me into a softer side of myself. You know, nobody looks good in Chanel if you don't have that poise and that posture of a soft feminine Girl, like you're not like a bulldozer wearing Chanel. So I would go to these jobs, and I would have to try on not only the clothes, but try on the attitude of something softer. So I did. So that it really
1: bit. worked as also therapy for you, modeling. Kind oh, of, oh, I, like I say it saved you. my
0: life. Like people are like, yeah. oh my god, you know, modeling was so bad for my body image and my whatever, and I was like, oh, it's so interesting that well, you can be in the same industry and really get two different things or seven different things, but it was so deeply healing for me because it was the one thing I wanted more than anything, and it was the one thing that made me embody my future self,
1: that the is energy, very the essence,
0: the vibration. I had to emulate that until it became mine.
1: Wow. Okay. So you had a very good experience modeling. It was therapy for you. You didn't have any of the issues that a lot of people do talk about when they model, which is, I love that. I love hearing your story because I think it's great. I don't think every story has to be, you know, a bad story. Um, what age were you when you met your husband and were you, when you met David, how old were you and were you still modeling at the time? And then I want to ask, still how modeling, did you Still modeling.
0: I met him when I was 20 or 20, okay. 20, or 21. And, okay. or 20, I think it was 20. I met him at a, at his, at this house, actually in our dining room. Really? He was having a bunch of people over. He's very social, very always at nightclubs, always at charity events. He's a mover and shaker. He's very busy and loves people's joy. So he, always and he was had, a lot older than you. Yes, he's fifty hold on, he's not fifty two. He is fifty four. Yes. Okay. Fifty four. He's older. Than so me. he And is wait a mover before you go on, is
1: it okay if I say he's not poor? Can we just Yes. Cooperate? No, no, no. He's Can extremely say,
0: successful and yeah, very wealthy. He's
1: he's very wealthy. I when I Googled him it was like one of the wealthiest people you don't know. You know, we yeah, know all the he's, obvious ones. He's, he's one so of the wealthiest low-key. people you don't know.
0: You will not know him. You'll never hear about him. He's never in the newspaper. He doesn't like that. He's doing anti-PR. He does not like, he's so. He again, um,
1: walking the walk.
0: Again, yes. He's so much Modest.
1: modest. He's you very still not know about him. You're more popular than he is.
0: You're oh yeah. He doesn't. His. And he's like, Oh my God, good job, babe. Like he's so impressed <laughs> with this whole thing. Like he doesn't even, right. it doesn't register for him. So how did you meet him?
1: So tell me what happened. You're 20 and he's whatever, like uh, much older than you.
0: I I get invited to his house uh, for a weekend with another girlfriend that I modeled with. She was invited by a promoter that was staying here. So David always has promoter friends and different people in the industry that are just his friends because he sees them at the clubs and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So they were staying at the house and they invited my girlfriend, Lee Green and I. And I remember... Saying, um, and I was shuddering, like shaking, thinking about the word, the words, the Hamptons. I'm from Philly. Like this sounds yeah. like some rich people weird yep. stuff that I'm gonna have nothing to talk about. I hope they don't ask me where my parents summer because my parents <laughs> summer in the Jersey Shore, like in a yeah. camper. Not like, please don't ask me where I summer. Don't ask me what college I went to. Don't ask me where my, like, please. It was just like my worst nightmare because I had such big, um, heavy, negative beliefs about rich and power and ego and that they were better than me. So I, the last thing I wanted was to be around those people because I would have to deal with the upheaval of all of those emotions of feeling less than. So I tried to avoid that at all costs. But my girlfriend's like, oh, come to this thing. And I'm like, okay, under one condition, I drive. So I had an Audi TT at the time. So it's like top down, driving to the Hamptons. We get there and I pull up to the house and there's a bunch of cars outside. And I'm like, this guy obviously is going through a midlife crisis. Like who knows, like, okay, because there was like really fancy cars. It was this huge house. I was like, okay, let's see, let's see who this guy is. So I get inside the house and it is Friday night and it is Shabbat dinner. And I had never experienced Shabbat. I didn't like, that wasn't, I never experienced Shabbat because my girlfriends that are religious, they do it, but I was never with them because they weren't with people that weren't observing.
1: So was this party a Friday night Shabbat party?
0: Friday night Shabbat dinner. Wow. So I, I like walk that. in I, I like it. and yeah, it's I like continue. 20 people at a table. Uh-huh. It's low lit. It's a beautiful, huge table. And I sit down and he, David had saved two seats at the head of the table for when we arrive. So I arrive and I, I see him and he's got his legs crossed and he's, his hands folded in front of him. And he's got this white pinstripe shirt on and he's just looking at me. And he's like batting his eyes, his eyelashes as I'm speaking, so I think I'm like getting on well with him, but nothing romantic. I was with um, a guy prior, or I was in a relationship for seven years with my ex from 18 to 24. So I was in a relationship. So you were still
1: in a relationship while you were at his house when I met, him. Yes when, when I met have, him. yes, when I met him,
0: because it was it was purely platonic. I was just like, oh, we're right. going to go to this house. It's nothing romantic. My girlfriend Lee had a boyfriend, so we were just like, oh, we're going go to go for a weekend in the Hamptons. Anyway. But
1: weren't you invited by David? Did David invite you personally? No, David
0: invited um, the guy that was staying here, and he invited us.
1: Got it. Because David
0: always has people. Like, I have two people here right now that are friends of our friends. They're staying on, like, the other side so we don't see them, because I'm, like, a little weird about quarantining. (laughs) Or about... uh, But anyway, I get to the house. He's looking at me. We're chatting. And I remember... Really showing him like 50 shades of Tina Marie that night. I showed him the political Tina Marie. I showed him the sassy Tina Marie. I showed him the smart one. I, uh, the controversial one, the sexual one, the whatever. I was just like, let me get a read on this guy. And as I shifted into each personality, there was no change within him. And his face remained the same. And I remember being like, I, what is under that hood? What is that guy? What What is going on? I don't not affect people. I know I can get- You can't get, shake him. You I, I He was him. unshakable.
1: You couldn't rattle him.
0: <laughs> I could not rattle him. So I was like, what is going on with that guy? Anyway, I, I just, I don't know what it was, but I knew that there was something special about him. But I was deeply in love with my uh, then boyfriend, loved him. Anyway, we remained friends for, I want to say three or four years. Um, but there was always when we would have lunches and we would only do lunches. One time we had like a late night together, but we would hang out and I would get such a big charge and he would rattle me up. Like everything would like become disorganized within me and I would come home really anxious and I was like, oh, like I can't. I'm just, this is too much. And I wouldn't know how to process the information. And my mom would say like, when I saw him too often, she would say like, oh, you need to go on a David diet. You know, you need to go on a diet from him, like whatever, somehow he just like whacks you out. And we didn't even know what it was at the time. And now knowing it was like, I was really in love with him from the moment I met him, but I am not a cheater. And I I loved my ex and I still love my ex, but he wasn't my, he wasn't my David. And I was always seeking and always wanting and always knew in my mind, I would be with a David.
1: Okay. And but what here's I mean- the interesting thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, no. I read somewhere you were not so attracted to him initially, or he wasn't your type that you would normally go for initially.
0: Oh, totally. Uh, listen, I was not in the market for a middle-aged bald man.
1: Okay. So like it I was wasn't not wh-
0: at all. He was not my type. So I wasn't, I, I didn't know I could even possibly fall in love. Like he was, he was older than me. He, our lifestyles were so different. Like the Delta between Tina Marie and David at the time felt so vast.
1: Right, like and We were you- on
0: different planets. He so you were Jewish. not
1: attracted to him immediately. You were not attracted to him right. Oh, off the I bat. was.
0: Took- I I was attracted, uh, like oh. sexually attracted to him. But oh. I wasn't. He wasn't my type physically. Like if let's just say if I if they did a lineup, I would have probably picked him last because <laughs> okay. he wasn't my type. Right. But when I got in and I felt his energy, he like knocks anyone out of the water. You could put Brad Pitt next to him, and I'll pick him any day. I'm not just saying that. I'm telling you. No, like he is, that's how
1: it works. Tell girls that's how it works. No, it works. It like it, women, it, it 100%
0: it works. works in that way. When you have that exchange, it doesn't, it, it, their essence, their brand, their their uniqueness will just ignite your particular makeup. So when I say for girls, when they're looking for advice, it's like, don't. Uh, stifle yourself by going based upon your type because i would have discredited the best thing that would ever happen to me because he's not my type but he's my type he's my he's my it's like a lock and a key he is totally my type but physically i wasn't i i didn't even that wasn't a part of my you know
1: yeah you didn't that, you didn't know what
0: the type you would wanted or i thought i wanted someone my age, my, like my background that could understand where I was coming from. Like, I just didn't expect him. So I, I am friends with him for many years. And then I broke up with my ex, moved out on my own. And I remember calling him and just letting him know that, Hey, you know, we didn't work out, but, um, I need to move out of my apartment and do my stuff. And he's like, well, let me help you, let me move your stuff, let me do all this. And I just remember being like, no. I have to do this completely on my own and I will call you when I'm ready to just even talk about it. I'm heartbroken right now, but I don't need any man helping me. I'm moving into my own New York city apartment. Um, this is, I I need to be clear of anyone right now, but I want you to know because you're not going to hear from me for a while. And we were very close. So anyway, I, uh, in the meantime, I start dating other men for four months. I'm dating a few different guys having the time of my life best summer ever. So much fun, getting my heart broken, thinking I'm liking this one, Uh, you know, going back and forth between uh, David's house and the other guy's house, like really having a wild summer. And it was my, it was a, wait, what was it? Oh, it's my birthday coming up. And he's like, let me take you on it. David said, let me take you on a trip. And I'm like, no what do you mean
1: the old let me take you on a trip scam
0: yeah exactly so i'm (laughs) thinking like okay you're gonna take me on a trip like okay i know what's gonna happen on this trip we've only sort of hooked up like we're gonna go on this yacht and we're gonna be sailing in the south of france but what if because we were so close as friends i didn't want to mess that up by sleeping together I don't want to mess right. it up because I'm like, wait, no, no, you're my friend. Like when I think of David, when back in the day, even now, I think of the one person, say I'm in like Bangladesh in a weird, uh, I'm I'm in a jail in Bangladesh and I need somebody to come and get me. I right. see like this vision of this man landing this huge helicopter and David like hanging out the side to come get me. That's right. how close I, he was my, he would just always protect me and get me and he would do anything for me. So I knew that. So the idea of compromising that friendship was scary to me. And I'm like, if we go, if we go to, um, on this trip, we're going to sleep together. And what if it doesn't work out? What if we don't, we're not compatible and then our friendship gets weird. So no, 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 I'm not going to go. Anyway, he does, he pulls some strings to get my girlfriend to want to go on this trip as well he pulls it all together. We go to San Tropez and we just have the most amazing time and connect so deeply. And because I knew it was either going to go one of two ways. It was going to be all that I ever dreamed of and what I thought could possibly happen, or I could be really wrong and I could mess it up. So I had to take the chance. So I took the chance. We fall in love and like fall in love in the way that you're just um the way that he spoke to me the way he he was so strong and so assertive and so um I don't, it was I, almost it, like the, it, it was almost
1: like and i hate to use this metaphor but it was almost like the daddy that you kind of needed In a way. You you know what? I thought about that too
0: because I'm like, oh, like maybe could it be daddy issues and whatever? And I'm sure that there is some element to that.
1: You don't have to have an issue with daddies, but maybe you did grow up having, you know, a stepfather, maybe a biological dad that really wasn't so dependable. So here what you really needed was the stability and that was a big part of the attraction.
0: Absolutely. And I just think the the difference for masculine and feminine, like I was never in a position where, and I think that this is extremely important to me, and I think a lot of other women can attest to this, I need to be the little spoon. I cannot, if I'm the big spoon, I'll walk all over you, I'll bulldoze you, and I will not respect you. Left to my own things, I will get away with whatever I think I can. I have to have a man with strong, uh, strong mental force field of boundaries of like, no no no, 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 sister. And David can really like I, I wanna say, let me know that he's not liking something by the look in his eyes. Like I can hear hi- him saying without words, are you done yet? Are you done? You can yet? hear him
1: think it. You I can hear, hear, him hear him thinking, thinking in the other room. You hey, hear him I thinking in the it. other um, room.
0: He doesn't ever have to say anything to me because I I know it and I like I- I- I'm I'm self-correcting. He never has to say a word because I'm like, "Mm, that. "That doesn't work. That's not working."
1: I love that, and I love that you know how you are. You know that you can be controlling. You know you can walk all over somebody. So you need the fact, you know, that this man in your life is very strong, and you want to make him happy, and you're not afraid to be the woman. And I think that's what we once we discussed last time on the phone is you're not afraid to be a woman. You're not afraid to to use your womanly wiles to get you know to talk to him which I really respect about you because my mom was that way every time we got in trouble in school she'd march right in and tell the rabbi I'm sorry what did he do this time and he'd be like oh don't worry you know he'd send me back to I would never get in trouble because that was my mother's go-to she'd always use her you know charming way about her and everything would be fine and when you when I spoke to you in the last conversation you have that same outlook with your husband, which I think is such a great thing because it's a tool that I think a lot of women don't take advantage
0: of. Take advantage of using your natural inherent um, femininity to be able to um, co-create with a masculine energy. And I think that it is a push and pull and a, 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 an ecosystem that is always waxing and waning. And I think that when you tap into that and really realize that your power is in your femininity. And it's great to have masculine energy. But if you are with a masculine man, not a Peter Pan, or somebody you need to take care of, you, nine times out of 10, you will win better when you stay in your, your highest. And I believe feminine, femininity and softness is the ultimate and most powerful and potent for women to use. I just think it's, uh, I I always say, I am my most powerful when I'm in my softness. And I'm raised as a ninja with a single mom. So the idea of softening is so contrarian to what I know. It's just, it's counterintuitive. So for me, surrendering into my natural state, because me being a ninja is when I'm afraid and I feel like I have to protect myself. But when I'm actually in my softness, I am like I was trying on the softness for the Chanel dress at my work. I try that on in my relationship and really soften into that. And I just, my relate, it's like WD-40 for my relationship. It's like, it lubricates it all. Things work better. It just allows things to move in a more organic way. It's not so push-pull. There's not so much resistance and opposition and, and fuss. It's more of, oh, like it, it's this balance that we both have that sometimes it, it gets out of whack. And sometimes I have to use certain things that, uh, may not be the softest, but um, it's predominantly me really identifying. Now, I'm not saying I, I'll just be a hundred with all the women that are listening. I do not cook. I do not clean. So I'm not talking about uh, femininity in that way. I'm not talking about like being a housewife. And, and that's great if that's what you're into. But for my relationship, when I mean femininity, it's um, when my me, man gets Trust
1: me, yeah. I know women that don't clean, that don't cook, and still they boss their husbands around, and they do crazy stuff. And you know, it's like oh, at least no, no, you're no. admitting.
0: I, yes, it's really um, the softness comes in when he comes in out of work, and I'm like, I get up and I greet him. Hey, Bob, how was your day? How are you? I, and as or it should when be. He, it, it's
1: what you say? I'm sorry. I said as it should be. And it should be the other way around as well. It should work on both ends. Everyone should get up and greet. I think that's the right way to be with your spouse and to be just, just decent in general. Always do that. So let's fast forward because you get the guy. We know you get the guy. Now comes the hard part. Tina Marie, you and David now are a thing. He's Jewish you know, and kind of orthodox from what I understand. And now you're not Jewish. How does that, how does this conversation take place? Does he say, well, you know, you're going to have to convert? Or did you say, you know, I don't mind converting? How does this whole thing happen?
0: It was never really a conversation until later in our relationship. In terms of, I was, I always felt Jewish. I knew I was Jewish. I knew I loved Jewish, Jewish customs. I felt really deeply connected with the laws of Judaism when it comes to cultivating um, like a good foundation for having your children to be growing up in. I just knew that my children would be raised Jewish. It was never a question. Because for me, what I was guided by was um, spirituality. So spirituality for me... Had, um, had never come up in relation to religion. But when I heard David speaking about uh, Judaism, all of the principles and ideas that I talked about with spirituality always had a tie back to the Talmud and all of the scriptures. And all, everything had a reason. And I was so impressed by that. I was like, okay, if we're going to do this, then I want to be Jewish. I have to be Jewish. And it's not even a question. It's kind of like, well, we're not having a divided family because I don't want anyone to ever question or uh, wonder about um, the Rosenberg boys. We hold, these boys have a long line of Jewish men. And it was my honor and privilege to be able to continue that. And it was so sacred for me it was such a big deal. I felt honored that I got to continue this line. This
1: I love that. Rosenberg I think that's great. Trap.
0: You know, I, think I got it's to so be great a that, part that you knew to that.
1: put your kids first. You knew to put your kids first. Nothing matters more than your children. And what you did was, you literally you put your kids first and you embraced everything that came along with it. But I feel like it kind of, if I'm if I'm reading you right, that it kind of came natural. It's funny. I have friends. Oh that yeah, yeah. it
0: definitely, it definitely came natural. All I. I just thought, like when I was going through my conversion, and technically through my, gra- or my great-grandmother's side, they're um, from Sulzbach. Or the last name is Sulzbach, and they were from Germany. So my, great- or my great-grandmother, she converted to Catholicism for my uh, grand... Or she converted for her second husband. So that's how it got um, right. passed down. So we are actually, like my lineage is... Jewish. And we had I was to like go say your lineage
1: is, is Jewish. Yeah. So we a had lot of people go... in Germany did that they, they we... converted just they were so afraid of being Jewish. Exactly. So any excuse to convert. So yes, that is true. So your lineage really does go back to Judaism in a way, which is why you probably felt such a connection.
0: I absolutely did. And and when we were doing my conversion, I remember um, speaking to my rabbi and we were able to like pull up court doc or um, like the uh, not obituary, but the like her No, no, no where you're talking not, yeah,: was, yeah the... Where she was um, buried, she was Jewish or, the teen, uh, buried in the a Jewish teen. cemetery. So they yeah. said technically, they could use that as a form of that your bloodline is Jewish." And I said, "I appreciate that, and I like that as extra, but I want to, for myself, be able to be educated in what it is to be a Jewish wife, mother, and, you know, I wanted that extra because I didn't want to ever feel insecure about my religion. I never wanted to not know. I didn't want to like haphazardly do it. I wanted to really like get in there and to be able to, so David's background, he was raised in a very, very uh, religious world. Like he went to Jewish schools and his family is a long line of Jewish men. So yeah. his mother is a Meishkiach, which is a kosher supervisor and most women are not Mehkiachs. Right. They are they don't normally let women do this but she right. has they're deeply entrenched in their faith and complete Zionist. So I, I knew that I had this is just what I wanted.
1: So, so did so- anybody not support this? Did anyone, Say you know David, even if she converts, we are not going to support it. Was there any doubt or question, or even your mom was there anyone you know did your mom be like i don 't want you to convert to judaism don 't give up your you know religion and did david 's mom or anyone in david 's family say well i don 't know if we 're going to you know i don 't know if this is going to fly with us
0: so it 's actually funny that you asked that because i I forget how lucky I am in this sense. um my mom, when I told her she 's like, yeah like kind of duh. Like, of course you're like, you've been wanting to be Jewish since you were little. So we actually found this little scroll, this mezuzah that I put Mm -hmm. on when I was five years old, that I like nailed into my dilapidated house when I was little. I wanted to be Jewish. I didn't even know what that was, by the way. I just was really already kind of drawn to that. I wanted the mezuzah there. My mom's like, yeah, like you've, we've had that. We had that on that door for years, You're always somehow curious and wondering. So it was not foreign to me uh, or foreign to her. And my family was like, it, and I also think if your family has, doesn't have, um, I was raised spiritual. I wasn't necessarily raised religious. So if my parents had had that, I think that would have been different, but they were like, whatever, whatever you believe in that helps you to be a good person and bring your family up in a nice way, you do that. And then for David's mother, his mother actually converted to Judaism. She was Greek Orthodox. So I was really lucky that she knew that, and she's, she does what she does now. She's a kosher supervisor. So she knows that you can really convert and have it be your all when you're dedicated and have it be like, she she knows firsthand. So I don't think that there was an issue. I also don't think that David's mom necessarily knew or even anticipated ever him ever getting married or having children. He was, he was like an eligible bachelor. He never lived with a woman, never was engaged, never married, never had kids. So he never did any, never lived with a woman.
1: Tina Marie, you had everything on your side. You had the fact that he was, you know, a confirmed bachelor. His mother, who was Greek Orthodox, who converted to Judaism. I mean, you had everything kind of on your side. So you kind of you did have it easy in that respect.
0: I did. Unless when I'm you really went to the lovely.
1: rabbi, did they pull a Charlotte on you? Remember we discussed this. Remember Charlotte in Sex in the City? She goes for the oh, conversion. Yeah, yeah. And they slam the door, and they're like, "No." Did they they pull that didn't. On
0: you? They didn't because I just had so much. Um, I would say. Uh, history, like a rigor. I was just like, this is who I am. It wasn't a question of if I wanted this or whatever. I was like, no, 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 this is who I am. And this is what we're doing. So I think when you have that authoritative, like certainty in your heart where you're like, no, 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 I am Jewish. I'm just going to let you make me official that I think that commands a different energy. So when I was speaking to my rabbi and I, I, I studied for so long, so I think that they may let you and then In the beginning, they kind of test you out to see if you're really going to do, if you're learning, if you're applying the principles, if you are, you know, if this is how you're going to raise your family, or is it because, oh, just so you know, I was pregnant at the time. So it, it could be, oh, because I'm getting married, or oh, I'm getting pregnant, or it could be for many different reasons. So they're always looking to be like, wait, your life is going to be a lot more restricted and a lot different. Why would you right. want to do this? Why would yes, you sign exactly. up for all of these responsibilities?
1: That's so the million really dollar to, question.
0: Yeah, they, they, they want to test question. you and kind of see you doing that. And, and for me, it was like, there was not an option for me to bring my baby like my Rosenberg baby into this world without that full absolute this is your life this is your family this is who we are this is where we're going this is this is us and we want to identify this way and we want to live that life so that was really it there there really wasn't an option
1: right and also they kind of knew in your lineage there was Judy's in there they had already had backstory I think yeah so they so they know um, so that's, it's incredible. Does your family come over for Shabbat dinners? Are they shocked that you do this every Friday night? Like I, they I have my love it. They love it. Of
0: they, they love my, and my family and his family, it's only his mom now. Cause his, his father passed away. Actually the first, we weren't even dating yet. It was like the month before we became official, his father passed yeah. and, um, so now it's just Eva, but Eva is just so cool and so amazing. And my mom and <laughs> aunts and uncles and cousins and they everything it, are always me. trying to get her food because she's an amazing cook. She can like whip things up in like a second. She can do it with her tie, or her hands tied behind her back. I, yeah. She's amazing. So it's we're funny, always my doing friends, Shabbat.
1: That would come. Yeah, they, you do Shabbat. I was going to say that when my friends do come, you know, they'll have start off with appetizers and then we go to another room to eat and they're like, but we just ate, you know? It's no, like there's like, didn't never just done
0: eat? eating. She has like six they're salads at once. I keep it pretty simple when I'm, when I'm cooking Shabbat, but she's full on and it's very Wait, easy for her and one. she loves doing it.
1: And she loves doing it. Yeah, it, it becomes second nature. I find that it becomes second nature.
0: It brings her joy. It really like fills up her tank to- To help other people to re or to like nourish other people that's like it's you're either with it or you're not
1: so you've got a lot on your plate tina marie you've got a lot on your plate you're doing i know i know you're not cooking and cleaning but it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. just even orchestrating it and orchestrating social events and taking care of the kids doing all that and in addition to all of that you have this amazing method method the shift and stir method, which I think is so great. And I kind of want to let people know what it is because um, I know that I have my issues with flying off the handle. I have a lot of friends, girls, and guys that kind of just, you know, always looking at somebody else's paper and always like counting what other people do and why am I not getting ahead or, you know, how? and this is a lot of what your book has to do with. Am I correct? Tell us more about it.
0: So the shift stir method is a five step method to shift your perception. And shifting your perception is on anything that causes you discomfort, pain, annoyance, upset, I call them stirs. Anytime you're stirring, anytime you're feeling triggered. When you're triggered, you're stirring. You're, you know, in this chaos of being stirred up. And when you, after you're, a stir is a negative deviation in thought. When your mind goes and, and spontaneously erupts into a negative thought pattern, it can happen within a second. You could not get that email or get that text, and you're automatically like off. You run to the races with your thoughts, and you're feeling, and either physiologically or emotionally, you're feeling the ramifications of that. So, that could show up in a bellyache, that could show up with you you know, uh, biting your nails, it shows up and manifests as an indicator that you're stirring. So the method is really designed for you to identify when you're stirring. Then, So it's stir, then there's sit, sitting with, in communion with your thoughts without reacting outwardly. So when you want to email your boss back with that snarky comment or email that... Um, Friend friend that or uh, the guy that you went out with and you really want him so desperately to invite you to that wedding sitting with it or that friend that uh, offended you and didn't invite you to something and you're really churning and you're stirring up and you're like you don't like me and you never put me first and you never whatever it is that your do made up.
1: don't you, react you are,
0: yes So the sit is designed for you to sit in communion with that discomfort without reaction. That does not mean you can't respond, but you cannot respond from a fear-based way because that is just, it's not in alignment with your nature. You need to be able to work it out. So then there's the sift, which is sifting through the thoughts, emotions, and thoughts and emotions that are happening within you. So it's going inside and asking yourself, and the the book is a workbook, so it'll allow you to really get clear on where is my point of pain? Where am I perceiving my sense of victimization? Where have I attached myself to this narrative? And is this narrative associated with my original stir? Nine times out of 10, that person's actions or inactions are only touching on or brushing up against a fear that we've had dormant within us since we were children. They're just poking at it and it's coming up with us, uh, up within us so we can heal it. So it keeps on happening over and over. You're like, oh, I always meet this type of guy. And you're like, wait, yeah, because you're getting the same information over and over saying like, wait, you need to pay attention. Then okay. there's the share, which is the fourth step. And this is one that I really have been talking about a lot recently because the share is about connecting with other people and owning your awful.
1: I love that. Owning your awful.
0: Owning yep. the parts of you that you rather hide, disown, reject, and point out in others.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And point out in others. Point out yes. in others. No. Look at yourself. Put a mirror in front of you mirror yep
0: so it's not that person's anything this is something to do with you there's a part of you that is responding to that narrative so really sharing that and openly and getting getting into it with people because we're all like you said in the beginning where you were like oh i was looking at your instagram and i saw this like quote unquote not quote unquote but like an idea of perfection that is um, the opposite of what I do want people to come to my my instagram for and i'm working on putting myself out there in a more impactful way, but I want someone to be able to know by me owning my awful and sharing and being vulnerable with what I am dealing with that they don't they don't feel that that opposition because when you own your awful you really even the playing field with yourself and others, and you realize your humanity and how much we are same, same, but different. We're all going through the same things. It's just manifesting in different ways. We're all in pain and it all shows up. And I think that social media really like everybody loves a good before and after, you know, everybody's like, Oh, I was here. And this is where I'm at. And for me, I really want to teach people the middle. What do I do? And how did I get here? I had to do it in imperfect, awkward, uh, strange ways of of getting it wrong.
1: See, I think I've been doing that naturally, but for different reasons. Like, I'm the first to say something negative about myself because I just want to be the first to say it. I'm always afraid somebody else is going to say it first. So I'm like, yeah. I just do you remember
0: Eight Mile? Eminem yes, movie, movie? Yes. When they're doing the rap battle and yes. Eminem gets up and he like says all of these things that were like supposed to be insults and he owns them.
1: I don't really remember. I gotta, I gotta find it again. You I'd have to watch to it. it again. I'll send you the yeah. clip.
0: But it's basically it him about to get up for a rap battle and he raps about himself and uses every single thing that could possibly be perceived about him in a negative way and he owned it. And then the I do that because I that, just
1: don't want somebody else to say it for so no, 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 no.
0: Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm disorganized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't spell. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. Like I'm want
0: you to know that and also it's like a, an exposure therapy too, where you're like, right. it doesn't hold as much of a charge if I own this part of me. And I won't be ashamed of it. I will know that it's there. I can know that I'm working on it, but I'm owning it. And I'm also communicating about it specifically. So the share is designed for us to be able to get into these topics that you're working out through the method and be able to connect with somebody and say, hey, this is my original stir. This is what it felt like when I was sitting. This is what I uncovered while I was sifting. And my next step is to share. What? Let me just get in there and share about what I had uncovered and see what happens. When we're in communion, Magic. I just, I just see just trans- transformation happen within someone observing and hearing somebody else's share. And then just the openness and the um, light that's drawn upon someone that is active in their share, they bring things that they're ashamed of or insecure about or they want to disown and like reject and they open it and they, they start allowing themselves to exist in that thought. And, right. and being able to not deny it, not stuff it down, not use toxic positivity, just really owning it and standing in their truth. And their truth can be, I want to grow, but this is what I am. And this is what I'm doing right now. And owning that to be owning able that. for okay. it to heal. Because you can't do healing work in the dark. It has to be brought up. The only way... For it to come out and to be healed is if you go deep, deep down into the, the dark corners of your internal, in your mind. So uh, then there's the shift, which is you've done the four steps prior. And so you that's cannot... number
1: five. Shifting is the last step.
0: Yes. That's what you're doing after you've uncovered everything. You've shared it. You've sifted it. You've sat with it and you recognize your stirring. After you do all of those things with a honest inventory, when you're really being honest, because I could imagine if somebody's doing the the sift and they're not being honest or not able to access their their truth, it could be you're only gonna get so much out of it. But when you're really honest and you're able to see and lay out the body of evidence of what created the stir, what those thoughts are, you can't really come out the other side without being, uh, without something shifting. You're going right. to see that different. You're going to be able to take some responsibility. You're going to be able to maybe sit a little longer. You're going to be proud of yourself for this share. All of those actions are forward moving. And you just took time out of your day to, to work on yourself and did these five things for yourself, you just can't come out that, you can't come out the other end without being shifted.
1: You You've got to feel better. You've got to feel better. Even just taking the time out to just go yes. through the steps in itself, you have to kind of, it, it kind of um, distracts you.
0: Absolutely. You're like, oh, I don't have to do my, my default defenses. I don't have to busy myself or shut myself down or do whatever it is that I reach to to comfort myself when I'm stirring. It could be a dozen donuts. It could be a glass of wine. It could be, you know, whatever it is that you destructively use to protect yourself that is getting old, it allows you to stop using those tools. And that's what I use. That's why I did it because I was always reaching for my emotional swords, my, my like shield of don't fuck with me. And that just got outdated. And I was hurting people that I loved with these automatic default defenses. And for anybody that's listening, thinking of your arsenal of default defenses, how amazing would it be if in three months, or six months, or a year, you can imagine yourself reducing and softening how defensive you actually are, and be able to really heal it, not just through changing you know, the, the chairs on the deck, but really deeply healing those parts of you so those things don't have to keep occurring.
1: It's, it's, it really does make a lot of sense, and I think that everyone is a little bit hardened and needs to be softened. Everyone could be softened up a little, I think. You know, Most people could be softened up a little because I think everyone has this kind of shield that's up with this armor. I agree with that.
0: How and do you deal? And I think deal- even, it's, it's interesting because I, um, I only know my experience, but I, I speak to women and I teach women. Sometimes your shield can be people-pleasing. Your shield can be being nice. Right. How could that be perceived as it's the softest, it's the sweetest, but it's a defense that you use to protect yourself on somebody else's feelings towards you. That if you don't do that thing that they want, you're going to have to feel less than. Because you want to fill up that tank of less than. So you think by doing X, Y, and Z, by burning yourself out and doing everything for everyone else, will allow you, it's, it's, it's still a shield. It's just a softer shield. It's a so really like undercover shield.
1: It's applicable for almost everything. If you think about yes. it, it could be applicable for everything. You have such a presence on social media. And um, I wonder, how do you deal with haters? You seem to be very much like a lady. And um, how do you handle it?
0: Uh, How do I handle it? First of all,
1: do you even get haters or no? I occasionally
0: do. I have noticed that there's been a little bit of a, um, there's been a shift um, because everybody's home. I think people are really looking to point out things that are, are, I don't know. People are petty.
1: Just people want to be petty. On social media, people are petty.
0: Yes. So people are like uh, looking those things up and it it allows you, I've noticed when I do get some commentary some of it's like, own oh, your awful. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I found that funny. I did a post of a, a name combination that I saw on a sign. And it really, it was like some like naughty name combination. It was like a first, middle and last name that said something really funny. And I didn't know that that was considered offensive because it was, it, I saw it at a nail salon and that could be perceived as like, I, I didn't even, I couldn't even imagine what it could be perceived at or, or something It was like, socially unaware or discriminating or whatever and I just I had to sit within myself and say no you will not like you could think whatever you want you can do whatever you want and I don't need to um because I was thinking like oh do I post about it do I say something do I and I was like no like, that's somebody else's misinterpretation. I just find name combinations really funny. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what color, race, origin, no matter if, if you're something messed up or funny, I'm going to laugh. I find that funny. But don't confuse my humor with a form of racism or don't attach your stuff, whatever you're sensitive to or whatever you're advocating for onto my stuff. So it's really having a shield and a boundary of I'm not picking up your narrative.
1: I'm so happy you did not apologize because I don't, I'm not a fan of the word police or any kind of police coming and telling us what you know I can say and what I can't say. And I love what you just said. Don't shift your humor into something more.
0: No, I will not let you do that. I'm not going to give that weight. I'm not going to give that anything. That will just not. But I believe that comments like that often prompt you to check in with yourself. So I think if I was uncertain or there have been things where I was a little uncertain about my intention or what it was going to bring, I think it could rattle you. But when you go back to, hey, what, what, what was that for you? What was funny about that? What was the thing? What was it? And you check in and you're like, oh, no, you're good here. Like, that's not that's not what's going on here. It's Tina Marie, owning, owning you're awful
1: that. owning it. Yep. Do you know how many things in this podcast throughout all the interviews I've done? Um, people would say like somebody will read it and you know, in the very beginning, they're like, well, we should take that out, take that out, take that out. I'm like, but that's me. That's my personality. You, you know, so I mean, you can't just start editing just because we're in a cancel culture of just you can't say anything, then just why have a podcast? Why speak? Why do anything? So yes, I'm with you on that, and um,
0: I agree. And I think that people feel that, and they can, they they connect with that truth and that authenticity and that that wavelength. And when you're too like when they call, I'm from Philly, so they call girls or people in my neighborhood. They call them rough around the edges, and I remember always being ashamed of that because it was like, oh you really saw me like I am rough around the edges and I remember never wanting to be that. So I tried to, you know, pretend that I wasn't for a really long time. And then at a certain age, I was like, no, no, I'm rough around the edges. That's just Tina Marie. Like I am, but I think of rough around the edges as like, it has these like jagged edges. And I think of the jagged edges as like a puzzle piece where there's someone else that is going to connect to that rough edge and there's, there's a, a unity. But if I was slippery on my edge and never had anything to say, never had anything to stand for, never had any opinions, never had anything, I'd be this slippery surface and I couldn't connect with someone because it would be two plates of uh, sliding glass. There would never be that connectivity. So if being rough around the edges causes connectivity, I'm willing to pay the price for being Rough I the love edges. it.
1: Great example of shift and stir. You see, yes. you implement it in your own life with regular things. Um yes. I wanted to ask you something else because I heard that you had cystic acne when you were young. Is that true because your skin Oh, not is, when I was what? young,
0: like 4 months ago.
1: No, come on.
0: So bad. I have to I'm going to send you pictures. So bad.
1: Yes, yeah, send me pictures because we're going to put it on the clips to show how beautiful you are oh, it- and to show people So what do you do for it now? Is there any tricks Coffee
0: enemas. I know it's wild. I would not have, if I wasn't desperate, I would have never gone that route. First of all, because I'm- Not necessarily. If you
1: told me that would grow more hair or anything, my issues, I would do it in a second.
0: Yes. I will do anything. We'll have to talk about your issues because I think (laughs) it helps so many things. I am not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. So I think everyone, if they're going to look into coffee enemas, they should do their own research and look up the Gerson method. But it really has helped me because I believe that my problems, whatever is coming up on my skin is a problem with my gut. So I started doing coffee enemas uh, the first couple weeks. I was doing it every day and it dramatic. I, I want to say after day one or day two, I saw my inflammation dramatically going down. Wow. Like Dramatically. Completely That's, incredible. That's
1: incredible. So then
0: I started looking into it and I think that is, it's um, a strain. It's called Streptococcus something. So it's a strep strain that gets caught in your body through the overuse or the use of antibiotics. But the only way to treat it is to use antibiotics. So I believe that my coffee enemas were allowing me, if I didn't do them, I would get it back. So I went on a one round of antibiotics and killed the bacteria. So I don't need to do it every day now. I can do it like every, you know, week or two weeks. Right. And, and not as time goes
1: by, you go do less and less longer
0: and- durations. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, but wow. It's That's great for constipation, headaches, dehydration. Um, I use it to relax. It's like my time by myself. The last thing I wanted to do or thought I would ever do is like, it seems so hokey and weird, like giving yourself an enema to begin with, let alone having warm coffee. It's, it's, uh, It's for the birth, but it worked for me, and if it wasn't for the results, there's no way. I don't cook. I don't do anything. Me having to be at the stove doing all of that, preparing that, it has to have a big payoff for me to take that much level of care. So I'm really serious about it. Okay, good.
1: So I like that. That's a great. Okay, great. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was your second pregnancy, I know you went vegan. Was it just for the pregnancy? Or uh, it was uh,
0: so now. I don't. I only eat uh, birds and fish. I don't eat mammals.
1: Got it. But it so really right after helped. That, You're I, saying, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Right after that, you.
0: Uh, right before I, or maybe when I got pregnant, or right before I saw like this traumatic animal video, and I was like, oh, like I need to not eat cows. So then I, I was like, oh, if I'm doing that, let me go vegan. And it also helped me because. I gained seventy-two pounds with my first.
1: I know. I read. and I,
0: I, looked like a, a like a water buffalo. I was just so big. My face was so big. I was. I just. I didn't have any pregnancy cravings, but I just wanted two of everything.
1: That was with maximum. Yes. And then with Lexington, Maximus. but if you I went would go maximum. to Burger
0: King. I'd be like, okay, two chicken sandwich originals.
1: Oh my not god. Not just you one eat Burger King. Oh my god, that's oh shocking. God, I you love don't Burger look like, like a Burger King. I'm like a fast food
0: guy. eater. Oh, but right, okay. so then the next time I knew that I needed to lasso it in and just not wreak complete havoc on my on my body again, so I went vegan, had a great pregnancy, um, felt really healthy and then continued it after. But at a certain point I was like, "You know what? I want to have some protein um uh, chicken and fish. I occasionally eat fish, but I normally eat chicken. And I think right. um, we have a visiting chicken. Um, he's actually a, a rooster. He's living with us. His name is Georgie. We found him in a box. He actually lives on the property now. So we know that we're very close to being done with eating chickens too.
1: And I was going like to say on
0: that edge because you see your say. kids lighting up for this yeah. animal, and you're like, oh, ah, yeah. we can't eat Georgies anymore.
1: No, they're gonna, they're going to be afraid. F-
0: Yeah, it's it's a natural progression. It really, like, I think people, um, there's, I have no beliefs about anyone else and their ability or their desire to eat or not eat. And I think that that's really important when you're making a decision to go vegan or not to eat animals or not to eat whatever. It's doing what's right for you, and it's not going to be right for anyone else. So anybody else, no shaming, no anything, it's like, just do you and your family, but starting to judge other people's plates because they're not, I I see people do it all the time. They're like, I'm like, no, Like this is just what I'm doing. I want you to get down with that cheeseburger. I'm jealous, because I wish, because I want to eat that. I just choose Mm -hmm. not to, and there's no um, shame attached. Because I think people, uh, I read a meme, and it said something about, oh, how do you know someone's vegan? And it says because you'll know within the first five minutes of me talking to them, so it's like a, a source of identity <laughs> for a lot of people. But just being like a relaxed vegan is great, or whatever combination you want. But for me, perfectly it was just cutting said. out mammals.
1: I think it's perfectly said. I feel like you have so many layers to you. You do a lot of research about everything you get into, and I love that. I think that Thank you're you. a big source of information and even inspiration. And oh, your book, Shift that and so- Stir. I'm excited to get it um, from Amazon. I already ordered it and I'm excited to kind of implement it into my own life. And I will say, I can't wait to meet you in person. I feel like we do have a lot in common. Believe we it or not. We really do. Talking. I think we have a lot in common. Same, same, um, the different. Okay. So thank you for coming on. And um, I look forward to seeing you.
0: Bye. Bye, babe. You've been listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you liked what you've heard, Click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com.